It's great to be here on this snowy day, and uh, I am very impressed, especially those of you who came by public transportation, that you are here today, because I know for a number of you it was an odyssey to get here, and uh, uh, God has purposes for you here today. The, you are the true Christians, the remnant who made it here this morning. Um, I am... Um, also glad to be here on a day when you're going to have your AVM, and if you don't know what vestry means, you can talk to Phil, because I know he can explain it to you, what vestry means. And it's kind of neat that you guys are wearing vests as well to celebrate, some of you. Um, but uh, this is actually good timing for us, because we are beginning a sermon series here at uh, St. Peter's on your core values. You guys have been going through Philippians. Philippians is a wonderful book. It's a book of great joy. Uh, Paul takes great joy in this church and in this church of Philippi that he's writing to. They have problems in there. They have uh, divisions. Um, they are being led astray at times. They are fearful of suffering that's coming. Uh, it is a countercultural movement that they are part of. And, um, and, and Paul tells them, Here's how you can live a life that is full and strong and joyful in the Lord Jesus. He's calling them to persevere together. And uh, you together at St. Peter's are called in this way too. And there are several values that you have. I think there's five. And today is the first value, which is under authority. And I got to say, this is, the people in Philippi found this um, as well, that this is the most countercultural value you can have in our society right now. And it, it is uh, a countercultural value because our society values personal autonomy. And I bet you are tempted to personal autonomy as well. Uh, it's, this, is, this is why authority is seen with great Suspicion, it's a, it's a heresy in our culture <clears throat> uh, because our culture says that I and I alone will determine what to believe, how I live, and who I am. So I have to have the power to choose my beliefs or my morality or my work or my sexuality, my gender, even when I will die. So all of life has to be according to my terms in this world. And in that kind of personal autonomy, there is very little room for the living God who created all things according to his plan and who reveals himself because we could not have known God otherwise uh, and who reveals his design for us and who is working out a plan because he is Lord to heal this broken world to bring it to the place of actually being in fellowship, all of it, with him, with no more crying and pain and death. It's an extraordinary vision, <clears throat> but that vision is very much obscured by this understanding of personal autonomy. Uh, and you know, some of the strong resistance to authority in our culture, as you know, has come because many have experienced oppression or they've experienced um, a misuse of authority. And all you have to do is look at the news and look through the internet and you will see it over and over again, this misuse of authority. Uh, Jesus knew about this firsthand as a man born 
in Palestine 2,000 years ago. God become man. He comes into that oppression and misuse. So when his disciples argued about which one of them would, be, would rule and who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, uh, Jesus says, you've missed the plot. And he uses it, though, as a very um, important teaching moment. Mark 10, Mark 10, 42 says this. Jesus called those guys to himself, and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's that pressing down kind of authority. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, the one who rules all things, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God turns the world's thinking of authority right upside down. Jesus, who creates the world, holds the universe in his hands, comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom means that people are freed from the tyranny of sin and death and self-autonomy, actually. They are freed to a life of serving in his kingdom for his sake. This is our worship. By his Holy Spirit, Jesus gives us the ability, the power to choose to come under his rule. He releases us to come under his rule. That's what it means to be under authority. And this is the truth that one day everyone will know. Um, in the middle of Philippians, and I think you probably went through this in your sermon series, uh, Paul is saying, look, you guys in Philippi, you have a problem with humility. Uh, you're all about self-ambition and getting ahead and so forth. He says, I want you to have the attitude of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. And here's what he says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A day is coming when all creation, the whole universe, and every person will know that Jesus is Lord and will obey him. Does our world believe that? <laughs> that is heresy. Um, it is saying that all will be under his authority, whether they want this or have denied this all their life. It's the certain future of the world. It is very clear all throughout the New Testament. That is the future of the world. And this is why St. Peter's has a value of being under authority. This is reality. It's the reality right now that will be revealed perfectly one day on the day of the Lord. So the question is, uh, if this is true, what does it look like in real life to have this value? What does it look like? Well, Paul in chapter 3 
actually talks about his own life an awful lot. There's a lot of eyes there because there's a testimony that he gives in verses 4 through 14 in chapter 3. He says, this is what's happened to me in my life. This is how I came under authority. And he says, um, he says everything um, that has happened actually comes down to one thing. And if you have your Bibles, look at verse 8. Because th this verse 8 is a life verse. Actually, I think it is for everyone, whether you choose it or not. But he said this in verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And this is what it means to be under authority. You see, his life, his resume is in verses 4 through 7. He had a very upright status. He was zealous for a certain career path. His reputation and his success was important to him, and he had it all down according to what his social situation was. And, uh, but all that changed when his natural eyes were blinded. Do you remember on the way to Damascus? And his spiritual eyes were opened. And that was by the voice saying, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me, who is Lord? His spiritual eyes were open to the glory and to the love and to the beautiful goodness of the Lord Jesus. And his life was turned upside down. It was turned upside down. And the values of the world were turned upside down. Um, you know, the closest thing I can think of as an <laughs> illustration of... Uh, these changes is many people in this church, in this <clears throat> congregation, I've noticed, have had children recently, little babies. And uh, if you want to ask somebody about a sudden life change, ask them about what happens when that baby is born. <laughs> when that baby is born, your life is turned upside down. And it's turned upside down for the good. But there is sacrifice. There is change that takes place. And uh, you wouldn't change it for the world because of this precious gift of this little child in your life. Um, and, uh, and to hear the testimony of new parents is um, it's an eye-opening thing because you see what this happens. This is what happened to Paul uh, on that day to, uh, to Damascus. There was an overnight change. His prophet and his loss sheet... Um, changed. Uh, you know, if you guys are, anybody is in an accountant or is in the finance world, investment banking, you can relate to Paul's images here. It's all about profit and loss. In fact, today at your AVM, you will all be seeing budgets and financial statements and balance sheets today. It's your chance to see that. <clears throat> well, for Paul, the great balance sheet is that for Jesus Christ's sake, I suffered the loss of all things, and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There is a loss and there is a profit. And the all-important great value for Paul is to gain Christ, to be found in him, verse 9, to know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection, and to attain the resurrection of the dead, in verse 11, in which he will be with Christ forever. That's the surpassing worth. 
That's the great pearl of, of great price, the treasure worth selling everything for. It is the profit-loss balance sheet of the kingdom of God. And that's what it means to rejoice in Jesus as Lord, which is how he starts this whole chapter. Joy is the overriding characteristic in Paul's life, even in prison, <clears throat> because of that surpassing value of the lordship of Jesus in his life. So um, as we are in St. Peter's this morning, uh, where is your mind and heart? What is your great value? Do you see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as Lord? Um, It becomes very, very practical at this point in chapter 3 because we're asked that question. What does that life look like? What's the real life under Jesus' authority? Well, it starts with having this understanding of the surpassing value of the Lord Jesus. And Paul very practically says in verse 17, um, here's what you need to do. Brothers and sisters, verse 17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Well, is that arrogance? You know, is he saying, uh, I'm living the perfect life and you need to follow me? Uh, You know, where's Jesus in that? Well, what he's saying to us is that it is really important for each of us to see what a life lived out by somebody who is weak, broken, uh, deals with sin all of the time, and what does that look like to live a life under the lordship of the Lord Jesus? Paul says, look at me. With all the weakness and celebrations in my life, the hardships and the successes, the joys and the sorrows, what does it look like to treasure Jesus? What does it look like to know him? Uh, Paul delights in thinking of the day that he is going to see Jesus face to face, and that shapes his life. He's telling, we need to see the example of his life and others walking that example. And in fact, uh, you and I, one of the reasons we gather together in church and in small groups and serving together is we're actually helping one another to treasure the Lord Jesus. What does it look like to treasure him? And I love the fact that the great leader of the church, the writer of the New Testament says, I haven't arrived I'm in process. Um, I haven't grasped hold of that which I really want yet. Uh, And I think that for us, there is a word here that sometimes we're very hard on ourselves. Don't be too hard on yourself. You are in process. You are helping one another to treasure Christ in his life, in your life. And the way that he puts it, He uses the image of a race, and this is the image that we should have as we go away from this passage. He talks about a race, and he says in verse 12 um, this. He says, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's his life. That's practically what it looks like. 
And I want you to notice there's two um, negatives that he says here, um, two nots, I should say. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. And then he says, I haven't taken hold of, of I haven't taken hold of the God in this life. Uh, in fact, he says, he says, I haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. But then there's two positives. He says this. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he's not saying, what I do is in my own power, I really press on and I, and I go forward for this prize, which is Jesus and his surpassing greatness, knowing that I'm going to see him one day. No, he's saying, I press on because God has made me his own. Christ has already made me his own. And I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God uh, because of the upward call of God. And I want to say something about those two things. Uh, Christ, it says, has grabbed hold of you. He has grabbed hold of you. That's why you're in the race. And if you're here this morning and you, uh, you, you don't understand that you have been grabbed hold of by Christ, call upon him. Ask him to, uh, to make you his own. That's what it means when we say, yes, Jesus is Lord. We are saying, we are opening ourselves to the fact that Christ makes you his own. And then this call of the upward call of Jesus Christ, the reason he's pressing on, that call isn't just an invitation that says, Come and, and, and come towards heaven. Come towards Jesus Christ. It is a powerful call that actually overrides our will. It works through our will so that we uh, are moved by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, to that upward movement towards heaven. That's what the race is all about. It's being grabbed hold of by God and held. It is by his power working in you to do that which is incredible, something that we cannot imagine, bringing us to the place of seeing Jesus. So I reach for God. You know, Paul's saying, I reach for him because I am held by him. He's saying, I press into him because he has actually enclosed me with his unbreakable bands of love, his love for us. And that's what it means to treasure Christ together. We help each other to press on in this way with this assurance. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a, a sobering thing here, uh, which is also quite wonderful. Because when you press into him, you are actually pressing into a cross-shaped life. A cross-shaped life. And it's not easy. That's why it's called carrying your cross. Because the world often opposes the Lord Jesus, and yet you are living a life where you're seeking to please the Lord Jesus. Uh, and that's why God gives power. I want to go back to that verse where he says, that I may know him in the power of resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Do you see how he puts those two together? The power of the resurrection that would bring life to the dead that power is at work in you and in me so that we can share in his sufferings. Uh, and that suffering that he's talking about is the cross-shaped life. It's refusing to compromise with the world. It's, uh, it's refusing to be conformed to the worldly standards. 
It is resisting Satan in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the Christian life, is, though it's joyful, is not an easy life. Now we are pleasing Jesus in a world that rejects him. Um, and God, in his power, gives us joy in that. He works through that. Now, I want to say that there are distractions to this cross-shaped life, and Paul brings that up. He, <clears throat> he tells us um, that, and I, I laugh at this verse in some ways because I used to, oops, I, I used to quote this to my brother who loved to eat. And, I, and you, you, can, you, can, you can figure this one out. Whoops. As we look at this, he says, he says um, uh, for many, in verse 18, whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is, end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, um, that's a misuse if I told my brother, look, your God is your belly, that's why you eat so much. Um, what, it, what it's saying is, is um, three things. He says their God is their belly, meaning their God is their desires, fulfilling their own wishes and desires, whatever that may be. And Paul is deliberately vague here. So for some people, it may be the desire for um, uh, money, greed, seeking that. That is their, their God. Uh, it may be sexuality, which was a real temptation in Philippi, and it is, is for us in a world that is super saturated with sexuality. Uh, it may be this desire for status, to be loved and to be, have influence and power, which is what Paul was going through as well. Uh, the God is their belly, meaning your desires is your Lord. And then secondly, he says a distraction is to glory in their shame. You know, to say that the things that God would consider sin is something that I will deny and actually glory in, to live into that as well, that there is a temptation that you are giving yourself into and over to. And then finally, he said, their minds are set on earthly things. There is a, a deep um, temptation for us to be afraid <clears throat> of the rejection of the world and to desire the reward of the world. Our mind is set on earthly things. And um, when, I, when I read about this, this great temptation that distracts us from the race, those things, <clears throat> I thought of a little article, a commentary in the London Times that I read on Wednesday. And this was written by a guy, a young guy, who, uh, who writes about his generation of 18 to 24-year-olds. And he said, it was titled, Christians Have Lost Their Social Cachet. Christians have lost their social cachet. And here's what he said. He said, the spiritual need is there in 18 to 24-year-olds. Indeed, he says, it's probably more vividly felt by my bewildered, property-less, astrologizing generation than it ever was by the easygoing nihilists of Generation X. <clears throat> Christianity's problem, I think, is that it is no longer aspirational. This may seem a shallow and unspiritual analysis of faith, but it is the truth. To succeed, a religion must be socially as well as doctrinally compelling. So you see what he's saying by aspirational. It's about being socially acceptable. So he says, importantly, 
Christian churches ineptly persist in giving the impression of being directly at odds with the values of today's secular liberal establishment. And Christianity is becoming an impediment to a person's movement to the upper reaches of society. So anybody attempting to expound traditional Christian teachings on sexual morality, hell or sin, on the premise of a modern law firm or a bank or a management consultancy will find themselves standing outside the door of an HR department in short order. And uh, he's right about that. <clears throat> he's right also about the problem that Christianity is no longer aspirational. But he's wrong in that the problem isn't about not being aspiring to social standing. It is the problem that we do not aspire to know Jesus as Lord in our life. We don't aspire to the cross-shaped life. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> I was deeply encouraged on Friday night. I went to a small Mandarin-speaking church plant that's part of Anik. It's part of what I do is visit. I was deeply encouraged by the people there. There was about 25 people, and they were sharing their testimonies. There was uh, several people there that were in the process of coming to faith, some that were seeking, uh, but they shared what their life was like um, because I was there. And one couple was there with two small children. One was a little over a year, and then they had a five-year-old who from birth had been in hospitals and had, a, had severe brain damage and uh, couldn't speak and couldn't move very well. Um, and you would think this would consume their time. But they shared, uh, other people shared about them that they had cooked beautiful meals each week for seven weeks in an alpha uh, program that had just finished for 25 people. And they did it so that there was warm hospitality for people seeking answers to their questions about God and his gospel. They wanted to reach people who didn't know the Lord Jesus uh, yet. And that was their cross-shaped life. That's what they were doing. And they were joyful in it. There also was a woman there who had recently moved to Vancouver, was a very committed Christian, and had been uh, working in mission. She was a younger woman. And she joined the fellowship because she knew that that church needed younger people. And she wanted to welcome people who were new to Canada and new to the Christian life. These people were aspirational. They wanted the cross-shaped life. They, they, they took joy in knowing Jesus as Lord in them, pressing in to Jesus with his power, with the resurrection power that works so closely within them. So Lent, as, we, as I close this sermon, <clears throat> we are in this new season of Lent. And Lent is all about being under authority. It's about God leading us into the cross-shaped life. And so the, que and, and so the question for us is, what are we to be about in the world? There's a wonderful children's catechism, which seems very adult to me, in the old prayer, group, uh, prayer book. And, it, and it's amazing because... It asks questions, very simple questions, with very simple answers. And the last question in it is, what is the vocation of a Christian in this world? What's a vocation? What is my vocation? Even though I have a job, even though I have a career, what's the vocation of a Christian? And the answer is to follow Christ and bear witness to him, to fight the good fight of faith, 
and to lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on eternal life, which is what Paul's been talking about here. And then right after that, it gives a rule of life. It talks about coming under authority to a rule, a ruler in a sense, of how you live your life. And I know you at St. Peter's have been thinking about this in the past, and there's, you actually have a book written as well. Uh, but I just want to read this really brief little rule of life here that follows. It says this. It says, every Christian man or woman should from time to time frame for themselves a rule of life in accordance with the precepts of the gospel and the faith and order of the church, wherein you may consider the following. And I love how it's inviting people into coming under authority uh, very gently. And it says this, first, the regularity of your attendance at public worship and especially at the Holy Communion. And I think, you know, one of the incredible values of this is what Paul was talking about. We, by being together, help each other to treasure the Lord Jesus. And then secondly, the practice of private prayer, Bible reading, and self-discipline. It is through that, brothers and sisters, that we know the surpassing value of knowing Jesus as Lord. It is through our prayers, through our Bible reading, that we are able to see that. Our eyes are opened. Uh, third, bring the teaching and example of Christ into your everyday life. In other words, you are living a cross-shaped life in your work, in your vocation, in your family life, in your social life as well the cross-shaped life, and then the boldness of your spoken witness to your faith in the Lord Jesus. If you are gripped by the surpassing value of knowing the Lord Jesus, you will share this. This will be part of what you do in your unique way. And it does take boldness, whoever you are. There is a step of risk and faith. And then uh, fifthly, there's only six of them, by the way, uh, your personal service to the church and to the community personal service to the church here and the community, downtown Vancouver. This, um, this is, again, living the cross-shaped life. It's being aspirational, living for the Lord Jesus who calls you to serve as he did, uh, to give it, giving up his life for the sake of the goodness of others. And then finally, the offering of money according to your means for the support of the work of the church at home and overseas. Um, your app on your phone, your banking app, is the most spiritual app, the thing that makes this phone spiritual that you have in your life. It actually reflects the lordship of the Lord Jesus as well. And so, you know, I close by saying here is what it means to be under authority. It is to see Jesus as Lord to know his surpassing value of his lordship in your life. And it is actually running this race towards Jesus, towards that day where we will see him in all his glory, in his power, because he has grabbed hold of you. Because his call is powerful. It is irresistible. And we thank God for it. May God the Holy Spirit who fills us and gives us gifts to serve him and is the power of God, the power of the resurrection in us. May he strengthen you to live that cross-shaped life and to rejoice in the lordship of Jesus Christ. To him belongs all honor, power, 
glory, authority, praise, and thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen.